First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking, parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they, may, they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are poor in spirit. We are needy. We are sinful. We are hopeless in and of ourselves. But you are great in grace. You are loving and compassionate. And you want us and have designed things so that we will not stay where we are. We will make progress. We will be sanctified. We will be convicted. And we will confess our sins and trust in your Holy Spirit to help us live differently as a result of the word that you're bringing to us today. God, may it not be my words. May it be your words. May it be your spirit's power that convicts and edifies as we look at your word today. We thank you for your help and give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we start again today, like we have so often, with a connective clause. Connective clause is coming to town today again since therefore, some, some translations just have therefore, uh, therefore since or therefore Christ. It's different ways. Here we have since therefore. And of course those connective clauses always point back to what was just said before it. And so let me kind of look back at last week a little bit. We talked last week about Jesus beginning his victory tour, so to speak, when his spirit left his body on the cross, at the point of what looked like ultimate defeat, Jesus started proclaiming his victory. What an incredible thought that is. And the passage last week finished with Jesus having gone into heaven now after his resurrection. So after his death, he went down into hell and proclaimed to the demons his victory. And then his spirit came back into his body and his glorified body after 40 days ascended into heaven... And then he was seated at the right hand of the Father with every authority, all angels, demons, and such having been subjected to him. And we noted the order of all of that. And that's important because it's going to play very heavy into what we look at today. Christ's suffering that led to his victory and exaltation. 
There was no path to victory and exaltation that did not go through suffering. Note that. That's incredibly important. It was, incre- it was incredibly important last week. It's going to be incredibly important again this week. Okay, The victory and the exaltation came after abject suffering. We sang this morning, in agony and deep affliction, cut off that I might enter in. After abject suffering, and the sufferings were in direct proportion to the glory that he would receive afterwards. The depth of the suffering led to the height of the exaltation. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, Peter starts to say in today's passage, he's using Jesus as the prime example of suffering, and that suffering was where and how. That suffering was in the flesh. Jesus suffered in the flesh. There was a clear differentiating as well in last week's passage between flesh and spirit. So he suffered in the flesh and he was exalted, oddly enough. He was triumphant in the spirit, suffered in the flesh, triumphant in the spirit. And then after all was said and done, he was seated in the heavens at God's right hand with his spirit, one with his flesh and blood. Okay? So Jesus Christ is in a physical body today, seated in the heavenlies. A real man with his spirit and his body being one. But there was a separation. He was suffered in the flesh. The spirit proclaimed his victory and then he was exalted in the flesh and the spirit. Now keep, keep that, put that on, a, on, a, on the cork board beside your forefront of your brain today. Okay, Jesus suffered in the flesh and then was seen as triumphant in the spirit. And then after all was said and done, he was seated in the heavens at God's right hand as real flesh and blood and with his spirit rejoined that physical body. So suffering in the flesh, triumph in the spirit, and fulfillment in flesh and spirit. And we know that we as Christ followers are to do just that. We're to follow Christ. We're to follow in His footsteps and we're to follow His example. So, Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Okay, so this this is where we're headed today. This has been Peter's pattern basically through this whole letter, hadn't it? To call his readers to something either right after or right before showing them the example of Christ that they have to follow in that thing. And here, right after showing Jesus' victory in the Spirit after suffering in the flesh, Peter calls on these scattered believers to arm themselves with the same way of thinking. Now, arm yourselves has the mindset of taking up arms. So Christian, you have the right to bear arms in your mind. To provide or furnish with arms. It's a call to battle. It's a call to fight. It's a call to take up the weapons of your warfare. And note that he's calling on them to arm themselves. How? By thinking a specific way. To think just like Jesus did in his suffering and the resulting glory that came after it. Jesus had made it abundantly clear all through his life, all through his ministry particularly, that his purpose was to lay down his life for his people. That was the whole purpose of him coming. 
And he knew full well the glory that awaited him after that suffering. And so now Peter tells his readers to go and do the same. Ultimately, he's calling them to suffer, but he's calling on them to do so in a particular way with a certain frame of mind. Was Jesus' mindset, oh, woe is me, I've got to die. Oh, woe is me, you pathetic humans are going to make my life impossible. Was that Jesus' mindset? Jesus had no, no, oh, woe is me mindset. And so now Peter's saying, guess what? Now you do and you think like Jesus thought. He's calling on them to suffer. But he's calling on these believers to do so in a particular way with a certain frame of mind. It's so that they will, listen, willingly go into suffering in order to obtain victory and the resulting glory. Scripture tells us that Jesus went through the ordeal of the cross, despising the shame, but it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured that cross. And we're to have that same mindset, Peter is saying here. It's so that they will willingly go into suffering. And what victory is he asking them to seek in this mind-made-up-to-suffer mindset? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now pay attention to that. He's calling on them to gird up their minds to suffer in order to do what? In order to cease from sin. Think like Jesus who willingly went into suffering in order to gain his victory and in thinking this way, look to gain your victory over the sin that plagues your life. And the phrase is a little weird it seems. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now what's that mean? Now there's, you could search out the commentaries from now until Jesus comes back and you're going to get a lot of different interpretations of this phrase. Let me read it again. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now what's that mean? I think Thomas Schreiner hits the nail on the head when he says this. Quote, He who has suffered refers to believers and relates back to the imperative to prepare themselves for suffering. Schreiner goes on to say, Peter explained why they should prepare themselves to suffer, seeing the commitment to suffer as evidence that they have broken with a life of sin. The point is not that believers who suffer have attained sinless perfection, note that please, as if they do not sin at all after suffering. What Peter emphasized was that those who commit themselves to suffer, those who willingly endure scorn and mockery for their faith, show that they have triumphed over sin. They've broken with sin because they've ceased to participate in the lawless activities of unbelievers and endured the criticisms that have come from such a decision, which we'll touch on in a minute. And then he finishes his statement this way. The commitment to suffer reveals a passion for a new way of life, a life that is not yet perfect, but remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers in their world, end of quote. Now let me wrap that up, see if I can kind of shrink that, shrink wrap that down, suck all the air out of it so that you get simple, okay? To put it all simply, arming themselves with a mentality that it's going to be hard to fight sin. 
and yet enter into that life and pattern shows that these believers are those who have been freed from the power of sin by Jesus' death. Okay, so it's like you're looking and going, I, I don't know, maybe you got a project in front of you, I, whatever it is, and you're like, this is going to be really hard. And you go, now let's do it. It's going to be really hard to stop sinning. But the believer, arming himself with the mindset of Christ himself, whew, <clears throat> this is going to be really hard. Let's do it. That's the mindset here. Okay? <clears throat> no, they aren't sinless or perfect. That's, this passage does not teach that having ceased from sin means that they're sinless and perfect. It does not teach that. It does not mean that. But they have been freed from the power of sin by Jesus' death. They have ceased from being in the continuous power of sin, which we were all under the continuous power of sin before we were born again. And knowing that you're entering into this conflict will produce striving and thus suffering of a very particular kind. So arm yourselves with a mind that knows this and is set on not wavering when things get tough because they will. Now verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now dig in here. Suffering and struggling and striving against sin is a lifestyle. Peter says here that those who have ceased from sin, who have entered the fray to fight the remaining sin in their lives, will do so. Now listen, let me try not to be overly dramatic here, but let me emphasize this right. They will do so to enter the fray for the, of the, against the remaining sin in your life. You will do so for the rest of your life. you're not going to reach a point where you're not fighting sin anymore. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Listen, the Bible is clear in many places that while all of our sins are dealt with, I bear them no more. They're nailed to the cross. I bear them no more, we sang this morning. And those sins are dealt with by the blood of Christ. Those sins we have committed, those sins we're committing currently, those sins we will commit in the future, all of those sins have been dealt with by the blood of Christ. That's what we celebrate every week when we come to this table. The broken bread, the broken bread which stands for His body, the, the, the grape juice, wine that is poured out that represents His blood, that took care of all of our sins. But the Bible's clear that indwelling sin is an ongoing condition that will always have to be dealt with. Plurals are important. Sins have been taken away. Sin has not. God did not take our sin away. He took our sins away. You're like, well, you're just splitting hairs. I'm not just splitting hairs. Amen. This is very important. Paul says this in Romans 7, which we talk about so much. 
So now it's no longer I who do it, this thing that I don't like doing, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. We, as born-again believers, have sin dwelling in us, in our flesh. And praise God, one wonderful day, even the flesh will be redeemed and sin will be gone. But to quote Aragorn, it is not this day. Which means that for the rest of the time that we have in our flesh, we have to make a concerted effort to determine which we want more, our human passions or the will of God. Which do you want more? Those times that you choose sin shows that in that moment you wanted sin more. And then you look back on it and you regret it and you hate it, right? I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do. But in the moment you wanted to do it. Why did you want to do it? Because there's sin living in your flesh that's crying out for those things. And I'm afraid, and I know, I'm not afraid, I know that that leads us to feeling condemnation. If I was really a Christian, I wouldn't want to do these things. If you were perfect, you wouldn't want to do those things. But you're not yet. And God has so designed it that for the rest of the time that we have in our flesh, we're going to have to choose either human passions or the will of God. That's never going to go away. As long as you're in the flesh. One day that sin will be gone, but it is not this day. Now this word passions in the Greek is epithumia. And it means desire, longing, wish, yearning, sighing, craving. It often has the connotation of lust or forbidden pleasures. And that makes sense since we said that sin dwells in our flesh, the desire, the passions produced by that sin in the flesh would be forbidden and or lustful. And Peter says that those suffering through this battle against these desires, against these passions, are to live for the will of God, not the natural, human, fleshly, sinful passions. Which means that we have to choose God's will over our natural desires. And let me just tell you, you know this, that's a tall order. Just think with me for a second. How many times a day do you have to choose between your human passions and the will of God? Dozens? Hundreds of times? More? I don't know. But I know it's nonstop. Because the flesh is calling out for things. And the Spirit is calling out for things. And I'm kind of like stuck in the middle going... And we don't have time to stand around going... We've got to make a choice. It's nonstop. And this is where I so often lose the battle. I'm not focused on battling. 
so many times. I tend to coast or just do things as they come or as they happen. But I can't choose if I'm not making choices. Does that make sense? You get that? That snooze button, that lunch choice, that mouse click, that movie that you pick, that reaction to someone on the road. Listen, those are all choices. And we have to determine that we're going to choose the will of God, not our human passions. Verses 1 and 2 again. Let's combine them again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do you see the intentionality in this? Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had in his sufferings, which is, this is mental work, mostly. We talked about that several weeks ago, how much of this battle is mental. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had in his sufferings, and he entered into those sufferings with that mindset. He went through those sufferings with that mindset, making a determination that your choices going forward for the rest of your life will be for God's will to be done, not to fulfill your natural sinful desires. Arm yourselves with that way of thinking, knowing that it is going to be a struggle. We are going to suffer. It is going to be hard. And the choices to be made are to be for God's will. And what's God's will? Paul tells us through the Holy Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You want to know what God's will is for your life? It's your sanctification. There, you're welcome. Age-old mystery solved. What, what, what's God's will for my life? He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be more and more and more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. Sanctification is the process of making us more like Jesus, setting us apart more and more for God's service and for God's glory. And that's contrary to the world and our human passions. And we've been talking a lot here on Wednesday nights. And if you're not here on Wednesday nights, please come. You're missing a good time. We've been talking a lot on Wednesday nights about how God will bring this sanctification about by His grace. And knowing that, knowing that it's God's will, knowing that He's going to bring this about, we can make these choices all the better and more effectively and listen, with the power of the Holy Spirit of God Himself. Our decisions are Holy Spirit empowered and directed. But again, this has to be known as an option. And we have to make our choices based on those truths, not just mindlessly conducting ourselves with no purpose and no plan at all, which is where I live so much of my life. A mindless existence. Everybody's working for the weekend. Lover boy, you're welcome. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, yes. What about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? Friday morning. Are you intentionally saying, God, I want your will to be done in and through me all the time? Instead of just mindlessly waiting for the time when I don't have to be at work. I'm afraid too many times we're just mindless. We're purposeless. 
And we're conducting ourselves being pushed by the tide instead of pressing up against the tide and making progress toward holiness. Arm yourself with this way of thinking. Choosing God's will, not your human passions. And what do these passions look like? Verse 3 deep dives into them. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So again, that first word points us back to what was just said for, right? Peter says that his readers are to choose God's will over human passions for the rest of their lives. For, and that for answers why they are to do that. And the four is, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And Gentiles here refers to non-believers, not non-Jews, just so you know that. So when you hear Gentile, think somebody that's not saved. And the time that is past, what has already happened in your life, well, that was enough time for doing what non-believers, non-followers of Jesus do and have done, what they're doing now. That means that when you become a follower of Jesus, however long you might have lived before then, that was enough time to live like an unbeliever. It suffices. Were you 60 when you got saved? Then 60 years was enough time to sin. Were you 6 when you got saved? Then 6 years was long enough to sin. Whatever time has passed suffices. Make a change now. And what do the Gentiles, what do these non-believers want to do? Peter gives us a list of six things. He says they live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Some of you are going, well, that kind of sounds fun. Don't go there. I want to look at them quickly, uh, individually. Uh, So sensuality, it refers commonly to a lifestyle of self-abandonment, but in a bad way. We'll talk about self-abandonment later in a good way. It refers to a lack of control over oneself, often in the form of excesses of sex and or food. That's the connotation. It's often linked to other vices that are associated with undisciplined and wasteful living. That's convicting. Ten times in the New Testament, mostly in vice lists, where it's linked with sexual sins more often than not. It's closely related to the Greek word asodia, which means reckless abandon or prodigal living. What did the prodigal live like when he went away into the far country? He was all about seeking pleasure. Parties and fun and women and ah, give me what's coming to me. So sensuality carries that connotation of sexual sin, but it's also just, I want to live in my senses. I want to live for the pleasure that I can derive from my senses. What I can look at, what I can smell, what I can taste, even what I listen to, what I touch. Sensuality is living for pleasure through the five senses gates. And that's what non-believers do. Passions, we already saw that word actually. Epithumia, if you remember that. Desire, longing, yearning, sighing, craving. It often has the connotation we said of lust or forbidden pleasures. That's how non-believers live. Drunkenness, pretty easy to figure that one out, isn't it? But if I had to ask you to define drunkenness, how would you define it? 
It means an excess of alcoholic beverage into a drunken, inebriated state in which one loses control of one's faculties or behavior. Well, I couldn't help it because I was drunk, which is true and not true. Drunkenness opens all the gates. Anything's possible. Things you wouldn't normally do, it's fine. I can do this, right? It can also, drunkenness can also imply one who is habitually drunk. Drunkenness is a state, not just a, an activity. It's what Gentiles do. Orgies. Kids, ask your parents at home. If they want you to know what that means, they'll tell you. If they don't, trust them. That's a heavy suitcase. Otherwise, I'll assume everyone knows what this is. Drinking parties. Now, wait a minute. We covered drunkenness, right? Well, this isn't drunkenness. This is drinking parties. And some of you are thinking, but wait a minute. Now, don't start on the alcohol thing. Alcohol's not a sin, right? Right. But the Gentiles, the unbelievers, want to live a life that includes parties where people come to drink. Is that a sin? Well, Peter's making it pretty clear that this is an unbeliever's desires. And therefore is the opposite of the will of God. So drunkenness, we talked about this last night. My wife and Lily kind of helped me put this in perspective. Somebody can get drunk alone. You can indulge in drunkenness alone. But a drinking party, you can't have a drinking party by yourself. There's a social aspect of it, right? You can be isolated in your drunkenness, but drinking parties assume a carousing group mentality. And unbelievers are into both, apparently, drunkenness and drinking parties. And neither is the will of God, apparently. The time past was sufficient for these things. Choose the will of God instead of this passion of the flesh. And finally, lawless idolatry. Interesting combination of words here, I think. But lawless here refers to unholy or profane. Lawless in a law of God sense. So that makes a little bit better sense. And idolatry, we, well, we saw it in our catechism, right? What is idolatry? Anybody can recite it? Y'all have been on this one like for like six weeks, it seems like. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. What? Why are you shaking your head at me? Okay, okay. Fine. So what is idolatry? <laughs> you shall have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images or idols. That's the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments. There's a primary place in the commandments. Idolatry is worship of any person or thing that's not the one true God. So it's not okay to worship. And what is worship? Worship is to ascribe worth to anyone or anything above and beyond God. I value this, I want this, I desire this more than I desire God. And, well, Gentiles, unbelievers, want to do this. They live this way, but God's people are not to. But we all do have idols, don't we? We have to choose to not value or celebrate church, individual Christian, Anyone or anything more than God. 
We have to choose to not value or celebrate anyone or anything more than God. So now Peter's calling on his recipients of this letter to make the decision to see that the time that they had spent doing these things in the past was enough. Not to look back at them longingly and go, man, those were the days. Man, I really enjoyed that. To recollect them like in a a wistful, oh, that was so much fun way. And we do that, don't we? We look back on all the fun we had back before we were saved. And Peter's like, no, 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 don't do that. The time passed suffices for all that. You're to be different now. The time passed was enough. And so make the decision to not do these things anymore, not to dwell on them anymore, not to live in them anymore. You used to live a life that was characterized by doing these things. Well, now your life is to not be characterized by these things anymore. Instead, you are to choose intentionally the will of God for your life, which includes not doing these things anymore. Oh, I think we're so afraid of prohibition in the Christian life. We're so afraid of saying, well, we we can't tell people what they can and can't do. Tell Peter that. Tell Jesus that. Tell the Father that. Tell the Holy Spirit that. Tell them, you can't tell me what to do and not to do. You can't say that to your Lord. He has every right to tell you what you can and can't do, what you should and shouldn't do. And you are to choose the will of God for your life, which is not doing these things anymore. Your life is different now. You, as a believer, do different things than the things that you did before you were a believer. And obviously when you make those choices, everybody's cool with that, right? Because your truth is your truth, right? Well, it didn't work out that way. With respect to this, Peter says in verse 4, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So it turns out those Gentiles, those unbelievers, aren't completely okay with these believers having their truth. They're not okay with these believers not doing the things that they used to do. That these Gentiles are still doing, these unbelievers. So these believers are making choices to avoid the things that the unbelievers want to do and live in. So these unbelievers are surprised. What? You don't want to. Hey, I'm having a party at my house. Nah, man, thanks for thinking of me, but I don't do that anymore. What? Oh, you think you're better than me. No? What's that going to do with anything? Oh, you're some kind of Jesus freak or something. They said that in the 90s. That's what they said in the 90s. Dude, you used to be the life of the party. Everybody that's coming said they want to see you. No, man. No thanks. Well, then their surprise turns into something a little harsher. When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, when you don't go with the flow, you might say, then they malign you. They talk bad about you. The word is blasphemo. They blaspheme you. They speak evil of you. They make you out to be the bad guy. And why? Well, who wants to be told that what they're doing is bad or wrong? Take, for instance, let's think of a drinking party. 
Some of you are like, I don't know what that is. Humor me. Have you ever been to a drinking party and don't have anything in your hand? It makes people incredibly uncomfortable. They'll offer you everything under the sun. Here, here, you thir- here, here's, it's just water, here. I'm good, thanks. We got pop or soda, if you're into that kind of thing. I'm good, thanks, I don't want anything. Um, I could whip up some Kool-Aid. I'm good, thanks. I'm not thirsty. Um, but you got to drink something. I got to put something in your hand. It drives them nuts. Why? Because it's uncomfortable to think that maybe, just maybe, what you're doing is not universally agreed upon as right or good. We, all of us, believer and non-believer, love. We love, we crave not just acceptance, but also validation of what we're doing. Look at the culture around us. They're not just asking you to say, well, it's okay if you want to do that. They want you to look and say, I say it's okay for you to do that. I agree with you that what you're doing is good because you want to do it. It's not just acceptance. It has to be validation of a lifestyle, validation of a choice. You're right for doing that. You're good because you're living in your truth. Sinners will make absolutely sure that you not only accept what they do, but also validate them in what they're doing. Or else... Or else what? Well, if you don't agree with them, if you don't validate what they do, they will malign you. They will. You're hateful. You're a drinking party phobe. Listen, don't be surprised by that. Don't take offense at that. You've armed yourself with the mentality that this is going to happen. You're not surprised at it. (gasps) I'm not a drinking party phobe. I'm a... I just don't do that anymore. I ain't scared of it. They will malign you when you don't validate their life choices. When you choose in your heart, in your mind, in your actions to say, I believe that is sin. And therefore, I'm not going to do it. How do we address them? We'll get to that later. Stay with me. Expect the maligning. Okay, so what about them? Verse 5. But, oh goodness, they, they, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's a pretty important word right there, but. These Gentiles... These unbelievers are surprised that people don't do what they do. They're surprised when people don't validate their choices. And they speak evil of these believers and followers of Jesus who aren't doing these things or validating the things that they're choosing to do. They look like they're in control of the narrative when they're maligning these people. They look like they're driving the cultural tide, setting the tone. And I guess in a way they are in the here and now. But, and that is a big contrast there, but they who are making these sinful choices, who are maligning those who aren't, 
but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, I hope you feel the weight of that, regardless of where you are in your faith journey. Because this is heavy. It's very heavy. And it's heavy because of the contrast. They're saying things about those who aren't doing what they're doing. They're maligning God's people who are choosing God's will instead of their human passions. And after they die in their sins and stand face to face with God, let me tell you what he's not going to do. He's not going to look and say, you know what, you pursued your truth. You chose your pleasures and I'm so happy for you. And I don't say that lighthearted because that is not what God is going to say to them. After they die and stand face to face with God as every single one of us will, God is the one they have to give an account to. He is the one they will answer to for all they've said in their maligning and all that they've done in their lives of unbridled human passions. And that account that they will give will be in order for God himself to mete out judgment against them for their words and their deeds. And that is incredibly frightening. He's like, oh, we aren't supposed to be afraid of God. Hebrews 10, 30-31, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, I don't believe in him. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And let me just say this. We don't truly love people if we don't tell them this. We don't truly love sinners if we just affirm them and let them go about their merry way without warning them of the wrath that is coming upon them if they don't repent. We don't love them if we let them laugh and dance their way to hell because we want them to be happy. That is not love. We must warn them. We must plead with them to repent even as they malign us and despise us. It's not biblical to tell these people who are slandering us that they're just okay and if they'll just be nice to us. That's cruel and that's selfish because you don't want the discomfort of dealing with their sins. You don't want them talking bad about you so you just go along to get along. That's not love, that's selfishness. And it's cruel. As they speak evil of us, we are to pray for God's blessing of salvation upon them. And we must speak the truth of God's word with no compromise, with no adjustment for the culture. Speak the truth of God's word and God's ways into their lives, calling them to repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus on their behalf. Everybody will be judged by God. There will be those who are believers who will be judged by God in Christ. Everybody else gets judged by God outside of Christ. And that's not okay. Because God is ready, the passage says. God is ready to judge them. 
He's ready to judge the living and the dead. That's everybody from all time. Whether they're alive now or they're dead now, God's ready to judge them all. God, the righteous judge, is ready to judge sinners and saints and will do so justly, which is terrible for unsaved folks. We must rue the thought of someone dying without Christ, without exhibiting faith in Christ, because they're going to stand before God condemned. And that means eternal punishment in hell. And once you're dead, you're dead. You don't get a second chance. There's no purgatory. Nobody can pray you into heaven after you die. When you die, you go and you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ where he will either say, I knew you or I didn't know you. And if I didn't know you, depart into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the smoke of their fire goes up day and night. And maybe you think, well, I'll just die and it won't matter. No, because here's the deal. We all live after we're dead. Which is how Peter finishes this passage. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, don't get too tripped out by this verse. It's not nearly as controversial as it might appear on first reading. We'll get to that in a second. The first word is for. Again. (laughs) And in speaking about God's judgment, Peter says in verse 5, But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And then for. Since God is ready to judge the living and the dead, so this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. I don't miss the connection there. Those in the flesh who are not prepared for the coming judgment that follows their fleshly life will give an account to God who is ready to judge both those alive now and those who have died already. But those who have died, who had heard and believed and trusted the gospel while they were alive, they'll be judged too, but in contrast to how those who did not believe will be judged in that day. Stay with me. They were judged in the flesh by unbelievers and maligned as a result, suffering as a result. But since they trusted the gospel that was preached to them while they were alive... Now that they're not in the flesh, but their spirits, alive in the spirit, the same way Jesus was after his death in the flesh, and they will be victoriously alive in the spirit just like God himself. And again, don't miss the connection between these dead but alive spirits and the dead but alive Christ in the passage from last week. So what Peter's doing here is calling on his readers to follow Christ's example and then he reassures them that just as Jesus lived after he died, so will they. And although the earthly fleshly people judged them harshly while they were alive, just like they did Jesus, God will judge them favorably following their death just as he did Jesus. And while the world may look and think that these believers are just dead... Peter reassures these believers that these dead people who were saved by the gospel during their lives are truly fully alive in the spiritual realm. So the preaching of the gospel to the dead means that they heard, um, that they heard and repented at the gospel during their lives, died, but they're alive in the spirit. This is not a passage about the gospel being preached to dead people. This is not a sixth sense passage. I see dead people and I preach the gospel to them. I won't ruin that movie for you. don't know that you should watch it, but I did, so that makes me a hypocrite. I won't watch it anymore. How's that? I don't want to see it. 
So it's not about the gospel being preached to dead people. It's about the gospel being preached to alive people who died and then went on to live in the Spirit. And the point is to show that like Christ, death wasn't the end because of the glorious gospel that gives eternal life according to the glorious grace of our glorious God. That's why the gospel was preached even to those, some translations say, even to those who are now dead. They didn't have the gospel preached to them after their death. They had the gospel preached to them, they believed it, and then they died. And the world might look on and say, well, why would you die if God saved you? Well, that's the natural order of things. We live and we strive in the flesh. The flesh dies. We become alive in the spirit. And then at the end of all things, God's going to reunite even our flesh with our spirit. And we're going to live in glorious grace for eternity. Whereas those who didn't believe the gospel while they were alive and then die, they're going to live in suffering and torment for all eternity because they didn't believe. They didn't believe the gospel that either was preached to them or not preached to them. Okay, that's a lot. We've got 12 minutes for application. I think we're all right. Three V's. I don't think I've ever had three V's in an application points before. And I'm really happy about these, okay? Vexed, V-E-X-E-D, vexed, vicious, and victory. Vexed, vicious, and victory. That's the application points. Now remember, application is how then should I live in light of these truths? How can I apply this to my life now as a result of having heard it and received it today? Listen, vexed. Let me tell you what vexed means, okay? Vexed means, and I, we could use the word um, uh, provoked. Let, let, me, let me tell you where I get that basis. Acts seventeen sixteen. Paul is walking into Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, his associates at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Okay, so Paul's walking through Athens, and we don't, I guess we do kind of have a, but he, everywhere there's idols. Like literally graven images and, and forged things and wooden things, and Paul's going, oh my word. Look at all these idols. It's crazy. And inside of me, he's going, blah, 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 blah. Sin should vex us. Sin should provoke us in our spirit. And sinners will be vexed by our conduct when we're not sinning. That's what our passage taught us today. That word provoked... Let me tell you what it means because this is going to set the stage for what we look at as vexed. It means to stir. It means to make sharp, to stimulate, spur on, urge, to irritate, provoke, arouse to anger, to scorn, to despise, to exasperate, to burn with anger. Now be careful. Some of you are going, yes, this stuff does make me very angry. We should despise, hate, be irritated, and be provoked to anger over sin. All sin. Primarily with our own. Let me ask you a question. And this is a question to carry with you through the rest of the day, through the rest of the week. Do I hate my sin? 
Does my sin provoke me to action? Does my sin bother me enough that I'm going to do something about it? Or are we doing the things we want to do in our sin? See, here's, here's a problem, I think. This is not the problem. This sets up for the problem. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's not a problem. The problem comes when we use that to say we can do anything we want to do. And it doesn't matter. Hogwash. We are so eager to explain to the culture why we can do the same things they're doing that we're not fleeing from our sin. We want to fit in. We want to walk through Athens and let everybody know this is all right if you want to do this. This is cool. It ain't for me. But it's cool. And then we kind of slide in and start to be just like them. Because we can. Because we're free. May it never be. May I never willingly choose sin because I can. Shall I continue to sin that grace may abound? Because where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. May it never be. I hope and I pray for myself, for you guys, for the church of Jesus Christ, that sin would vex us. And you can tell what vexes you. Let me ask you this question. Where do you feel at home the most? Where do you feel the most pleasure? Is it in doing the things that the Gentiles do? Again, my brothers, these things ought not be this way. Your passions are waging war against you. And sometimes, Sarah Groves says, it's hard to tell what to keep and what to kill. What, make, what of this makes us who we are? And we're so afraid of denying ourselves because I've got to be true to myself. That's worldly philosophy. Scripture says, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow Him. You engage yourself with the same vein of thinking that Jesus had, which means I'm going to arm myself to suffer in my struggle against my human passions, against the sin that dwells in me. And if that sin is not vexing you, it should. And I'm saying that to myself too. Just a quick aside there, on Paul in Athens, he was vexed by all the idols. And what did he do as a result of it? He preached the gospel. That's how we address sin in other people. We call them to repentance through the truth of the gospel. We love them enough to proclaim the gospel to them and to call them to repentance. We don't hate them and point out their sins so that they can see their sins. And tell how we're so much better than they are because we don't sin like they sin. That's not what Paul did. Paul's spirit was provoked within him and he said, i got to preach the gospel here. 
So we're vexed mostly over our own sin, and all sin vexes us, but sins of other people move us, moves us to preach the gospel to them. Not to judge them, put up our noses at them, and be disgusted by them, but to love them enough to preach the gospel to them. He didn't malign them, even though I'm sure they maligned. Well, they did. They said, you're, you're crazy. He's a vain babbler. He's talking about crazy stuff, like people coming back from the dead. That's nuts. And Paul said, I'm going to say it again several times while I'm in this city. I'll punch your ticket for today. I've got a rewards offering. If you keep coming back, you're going to keep hearing the gospel. Tenth one's free. (laughs) He didn't malign them when they maligned him. He preached the gospel. He didn't act hatefully toward them. May our vexation with our sins lead us to repentance and may our vexation with other sins lead us to preach the gospel to them, praying for their escape out of those sins. Vexed. Next one is vicious. Sin is destructive. Sin is vicious to us, toward us. We are to be vicious toward it as well. John Owen said, either be killing your sin or it will be killing you. There is a call to wholesale action here. We don't keep it in a cage and let it out every now and then when we want to. We kill it. We are called to kill our sins. Galatians 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. They're enemies to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Says the same Paul who wrote Romans 7 who says, I'm doing the thing I don't want to do. And then he says this in 524 of Galatians. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. And desires. Kill it. Kill it. Don't make provision for your flesh. Kill it. Paul said, I die daily. Put it to death and keep putting it to death. Because it's ornery. It won't just go away. For the rest of your life, you got to be killing sin. And you got to be vicious toward it. Not hugging it and saying, oh, this is good, I like it. Oh, I hate to throw this away. Change your thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had. It's going to be a struggle. You're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. Vexed, vicious, and thank God, victory. Listen to me, church. We can walk in victory over our sins right now. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You sin because you choose to sin, not because you had to. 1 Corinthians 10, 31? Or is it 13? No temptation has overtaken you but that which is common to man. But God is faithful who will provide a way of escape. Let no one say when they sinned, God tempted me with sin. You're tempted when it's your own desires that flare up and make you want things. But we have victory to be able to look and say, no, I want that in the flesh. But I'm no longer going to walk in the deeds of the flesh. I'm going to walk according to the will of God. How did we do this? 
really quickly. Romans 6, 1-7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we, should, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I don't know why I don't have seven up here. For one who has died has been, listen, set free from sin. And that's our current state as believers. We died with him. So I can look at that sin and say, I have died to that. I love the illustration that Alistair Begg gave to this. How does a married man reckon himself married all the time? It's a conscious choice, right? He can't just say, well, I'm married, so I'll never be tempted again by anybody that's not my wife. Don't do that, guys. Begg says this. Let him roll his ring around his finger. And remind himself that he is not single. Let him remember these things and let him live accordingly. That's how you reckon. It's an accounting term. I'm dead to sin. Well, I don't feel dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. Write it in the ledger. And when you're tempted by that sin... Remind yourself of the truth of it and go to God and say, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help me to choose your will, not the sins that my flesh desires. But you know what? you got to do that intentionally on purpose. And by the power of the dead, buried, resurrected, ascended Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, we can do that. We can. And if we don't, it's because we chose not to. Let him roll his ring around his finger and remind himself that he is not single. When that sin stands in front of you, roll the ring of your marriage with Christ around your spiritual finger and remind yourself, I am not my own. And I will choose the will of God over the desires that my flesh are screaming at me right now. And ultimately, after being maligned and suffering through our lives to battle and kill sin, we will get the full and final victory. When sin is completely eradicated and we will struggle with it no more and God judges us and rewards us for the work that He did in and through us to the, glory, to the praise of His glorious grace, after suffering comes victory and glory. And I'll finish with George Mueller quote that I posted on the Facebooks this week. Mueller said, There was a day when I died. Died to self, my opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame even of my brethren or friends. And since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Let him roll his ring around his finger and remind himself that he is not single. And walk in victory as a result. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not left room for us to walk in sin. You have left this sin in our flesh by your holy design 
And it's so that we might rely on you, so that we might remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel and the power of the Spirit who lives in us and fully cast ourselves upon your power to do what we can't do. Father, may we be vexed by our sins and the sins of others. May we be vicious toward our own sins, not the sins of others. And may we walk in victory, proclaiming the possible victory for everybody who will come to Christ and find their victory in Him. And Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight and we don't struggle with sin anymore, but it is not this day. Help us to arm ourselves with the same thought pattern that was in Christ, knowing that suffering leads to glory. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just stand and receive a benediction. My favorite one. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.